Welcome back, everybody, to the last episode in the CFFL Memoria series. But hopefully, with several dozens, if not hundreds more podcasts to come for the CFFL HQ. Today, we look at CFFL Memoria 2011. The last one in the series for a couple reasons here. One, 2011 was the first time that we had basically the entire league. Alex couldn't make it. Like I said, Alex was on the West Coast. This was the first time that we had everybody in attendance for um, for the draft. So nine Nine people there. And I feel like a few other people too. Like this is the first kind of like communal atmosphere uh, that took place in 2011. And we talked in the 2012 podcast about how that was the back end of a two-year period that really helped solidify the league. And if you look at 2011, that certainly, I think, would catapulted us into a new and better direction because if you trace the lineage of our league, a lot of it was, you know, who Brian and I, we had Brian, me, and then we started to branch off. Well, who could we bring in that we know? And we were scouring <laughs> – we were running on fumes there by the end. Like I said, 2008, 2009, it was just getting it. Can we have an eight-team league? And then we got to that, barely, holding on by threads. And then with with Brian S. in the league, that allowed us – that opened us up to a whole new array of possibilities. And – 2011 we were able to get JB in which then brought on Pino and that you couldn't ask for better quality hang talent and intelligence and love of fantasy sports than that lineage that took place there so like that was huge for our league that we were able to grow like kind of a layer or a tier beyond just who did I know or who did Brian know or then how could we get this up and running? So like to bring in that aspect was huge and to be able to get Brad into it and be able to spend some quality time with him and just go through this together. Like that made it awesome. So taking that eight to 10 and then that 10 becoming over this two-year span, even more solidified. Like I said, we have far more incoming people than we've had departures in the league, which I think is a great testament to what the league was. And bringing JB and Brad in in 2011, and the fact that both of them won titles within, what, three years from that point? And as much as Jeremy came into the league and was – just crushing it. I mean, Justin was shot out of a freaking cannon. And we mentioned this a little bit in the 2012 
podcast, but you know, I've read that I should repeat a little bit in case people just drop in on different episodes. My man went nine and one with an 82% SOS. 82% SOS puts you, if you're above 80, okay, no one's ever hit a 90% SOS. And let me just recap that again. So there's 10 people in the league. If you score, if you get the highest score each week, you would get 10 out of 10, which is one or 100%. No one has ever been at a sustained 90%, like very few. Most of your championship caliber teams, like dominant championship caliber teams, are anywhere between, say, like 80 and 87% have been like the highest ranges. You can get title winners in the 70s, but those aren't your definitive winners. I don't think we've had anyone win it yet who was in the 60s. That would be a lot of luck involved. Justin came in 9-1, and one, 82% SOS. 2012, 8-2, and two, 75% SOS. Year 3, 9-2, 79% SOS. And he finally wins it in, 20, um, in 2014, 9-2, 76% SOS. So you put all that together. If you're counting at home, it's 39 and seven in his first four years in the CFFL. 39 and seven. And finally, it took him to the end of that fourth year to get a title. But still, you want to talk about just coming in and just adding legitimacy to a league. And ironically, he loses two years later to the other 2011 enrollee, Brad A., who, while hasn't had the success, the sustained success of Justin B., he always he will have he always has that 2013 season over him. So, whereas the 2012 guys, Casey and Bobby, have been fantastic, have been awesome additions to the league. No jackets yet. Whereas we look at the 2011 enrollees, or whatever we want, what do we want to call them? Early enrollees. So in 2011 enrollees, freshmen, whatever you want to call them, three titles between them, five championship uh, appearances. That's Incredible work. And it came at a time, again, 2009, we had, we were holding on, I wouldn't say by a thread, but it was still, we're trying to build this out to eight. 2010, we had eight owners in eight different houses. 2011, we got it up to 10. And by getting it up to 10, and all 10 people living in different addresses, it that was, I think, the biggest step in the league, and I don't think we get that without dipping into the talent in the state of Maryland. Like that, to me, if someone said, "When do you think your league made the biggest turn?" 
I, I think it's 2011. 2012, I think being able to fill the departures uh, from Alex and Andrew, that, that was really important. But I don't know. It, the league would have – I don't think the league would have gained the traction it did without being able to get Brad and Justin in there in 2011. And by getting Justin, by extension, we got Pino, who's been an incredible owner. He's also had some bad luck, like some bad mojo uh, outside the Baltimore area when it comes to the CFFL. I mean, like championship caliber teams, arguably best roster some years, and then just just falls short a little bit. So that to me, though, in 2011, that's what made it. That's when I knew, okay, we got something here to work with. We got something that we don't have to lay so many foundational pieces anymore. Now when we bring people in, we can be careful. We can be thoughtful. We don't have to bring in four people at a time. We can always try to bring in two, and we can vet two and figure out a way to bring symmetry to make the league better. And I think that that's ultimately – uh, what we were trying trying to get at there. It was good stuff. So, yeah, that's if anyone asked me what was the, the most important moment in the logistics of our league, I would say it would be 2011. Enhance the draft experience. Enhance the league numerically, enhance the league competitively. That's why I think it's the most important here. And then followed up right behind it. I didn't do all these in order of importance. I wanted to start looking at some of the years in what we could talk about. Like when we got to the end, it's like, well, let's let's take a look at these. Like the last three, we added people. 2015. 2012, 2011. Okay. So that to me, that to me was huge. When we look on the field in 2011, like I said, you had some murderous row at the top of the, murderous row at the top of the, uh, at the top of the league. JB, nine and one. JH, eight and two. Brian S, eight and two. Some artillery at the top at the top of the order here. Um, even Andrew, Andrew had five All CFFL players in 2011, finished with a six and four record, and had the best quarterback in the league that year. So it was wide open. The commission went five and five, won the title somehow. You know, maybe this is repayment. I actually had a SOS percentage of 51% and won the title. Like I've had years that I've lost where I was a worthy champion. And we talked about that in 2019, that my 2019 team statistically is the third best team in CFFL history. And I lost because the second best team in CFFL history beat me. But again, this isn't about, talking so much about who won and for in the year I won. It's 
I was lucky. There was a lot that happened. But I was just happy with how the league took place. When we look at the playoffs that year, some high power scoring that year. So we only had one contest that didn't have a 200-point team in it. Like when you look at some of the highest outputs in playoff history, 2011 was a banger, okay? Andrew R. beat Brian S. in the opening round, 195 to 166. It's the only contest that didn't have a 200-point score. Nick H., the commish, beats Jeremy, 276.5 to 189. J.H. beats Andrew R. 239 to 141. And, I mean, just in an absolute bloodbath, Nick H. beats Justin B. Gives him only a second loss of the year, 225.8 to 211.5. Which gives the sibling rivalry. You got to realize what J.H. was going for here. This was his best team, and he didn't win it. Now, he should have won it. This, again, it, it's amazing, the symmetry sometimes. Like, in 2019, I lost because my running back, Jonathan Ward, who was running up and down the field in the first half, pulls up lame at the end of the half, and he can't play in the second half. I mean, he was crushing it. Absolutely crushing it. And then Brian G gets a huge defensive performance that night and allows him to get back into it, and he wins. J.H. was going to crush me. Absolutely crush me. And at the end of the first half, RG3 gets a concussion in his game. Can't play second half. That's the only reason I won 207 to 197. If he plays the second half, this isn't even close. J.H. gets his third title in four years. Puts him on the Mount Rushmore of the best CFFL owners of all time. At that point, makes him the undisputed best CFFL owner of all time. But... That hit changed everything. And if we run through the stats in that game, had Chandler Harnish from Northern Illinois, 31.2 points, nine completions, 98 yards, a passing touchdown, 148 rushing yards, and a rushing touchdown. Uh, Adonis Thomas, Toledo, 141, a touch, three catches, 26 yards, 25.7 points. Bernard Pierce, 189 yards, three rushing touchdowns, 36.9 points. Uh, Giovanni Bernard, who was picked up during the season, 165 yards, one rushing touchdown, four catches, 57 yards, 32.2 points. So, like, all these guys are hitting on all cylinders here. Um, Jeremy Ebert, Northwestern, seven catches, 39 yards, and a touch, 16.9 points. Kamar Jordan from Bowling Green. 
it's not Navy here every day. Um, I, but now that I hear it, like it takes me back. Three catches, 74 yards, two touches, 22.4 points. Marquise Wilson, seven catches, 108 yards, two touchdowns, 29.8 points. Luke Wilson, tight end, one catch, two yards, 1.2. Houston special teams gets six points. Iowa defense only gets me five. I really struggle in uh, defensive performances in, uh, in the championship games. Bob Griffin in the first half, seven completions, 106 yards, a touchdown, 62 rushing yards, two and uh, two rushing touchdowns. He had 28.8 yards, uh, 28.8 points with, I want to say it was like five minutes to go in the first half. I mean, he was crushing it. He gets hurt, and that changed everything. Sterling Jackson only got four yards at running back uh, uh, for Hawaii, 0.4 points. Trent Richardson, 203 yards, uh, a reception, five yards, and a touchdown, 27.8 points. Uh, Andre Ellington, Clemson running back, two receptions, five yards, 66 rushing yards, 9.1 points. Uh, Tyler uh, Tyler Shoemaker from Boise State, four catches, 53 yards, 9.3 points. Kendall Wright, who was an absolute monster that year, six catches, 125 yards from Baylor, uh, two touchdowns, 30.5 points. And then good old Eric Page, 16 catches, 145 yards, and a receiving touchdown uh, for the Toledo running uh, wide receiver. Huge output. Gavin Escobar, four catches, 68 yards, 10.8 points. He got 14 points from the Southern Miss uh, special teams and another 30 points from the uh, Southern Miss defense. So a huge output. RG3 doesn't get hurt. He's probably looking like 240 to 207, and he wins it all. Sometimes that's just how it balances out, right? Um, Sometimes we win when we're not supposed to. Sometimes when we lose when we should win. No one from the all CFFL uh, from 2011 on the all CFFL team. Some close, but not all the way. Uh, some close performers. We look at the draft that year. Monte Ball, two point nine WAR for Jeremy P. Tenth pick overall. Justin Blackman, fifth pick overall, uh, two point five WAR. Jordan White, 11th pick overall, two war. Those were your best players for uh, in 2011 in the draft. Ronnie Hillman was fourth. He was the first overall pick in the draft, 1.5 war. That's really it, though. And, again, I think part of that is because of just how big the rosters were. I've said that a lot. Some of your worst players, uh, Brad A's love affair of Dominique Davis, a quarterback for East Carolina, resulted in a minus 1.8 war. That's pretty big. Uh, Darius Bright from Hawaii for Jeremy. And he's going back to that Greg Salas well. One, minus 1.3 war. Spencer Ware for LSU for Alex A, minus 1.2 war. DJ Wood, Cincinnati wide receiver, minus 1.1 war for the commish. Justin Hardy, minus one war for Rob B. When you look at who were the best teams that year, 
Jay's overall team, 7.4 war. Justin, 7.3. The Kamish, 5.8. Really, you know, Brian S, 8 and 2, only a 0.6 war. What that probably suggests that one part of his team just wasn't really balanced, which happens. It's just a data point. Um, see we got here talked about that case keenum we'll get into that in a second it felt like he was around forever and he certainly was one of those symbolic players in our league like if you were talking about 10 to 15 symbolic players maybe the stats weren't all the way the best but what they stood for as like true college fantasy football value he certainly was one of them and he had an awesome year this year. And we'll get into that in one second. Let's run through these teams. So Andrew led the way, five all CFFL players. We only had two teams. He had three on the first, two on the second. Jay had two on the first, two on the second, four total. JB, two on the first, one on the second, three total. Jeremy had one on each. Alex had one on each. Kamish had one on each. Brad had one on the first team. So... We look at that second team, all CFFL. Bob Griffin, 2.02 war. Um, that kind of shocked me. It seemed a little low for how good his season was. But, yeah, he was only a two-winner. Part of that because he got hurt in that game. That certainly hurt because he underperformed statistically, even though he was crushing it uh, until he got hurt. Uh, Michael James, 1.7 war at running back for Andrew R. Brian S. had Ronnie Hillman. First overall pick, a 1.53 war from San Diego State. And Jeremy P. had Bobby Rainey, Western Kentucky, 1.47 uh, war at the wide receiver position. Jordan White from Western Michigan for JB uh, was a 1.98 war. Patrick Edwards for Houston for Andrew R was a 1.68 war and Marquise Wilson for the commission was at a 1.39 war tight ends that year. Um, you had Gavin Escobar, Kobe Fleener, 0.58.57 war. And then your two defenses were Oklahoma and South Carolina, which were around a one war. That brings you to your first team. Case Keenum, 2.28 war. Uh, first team, all CFFL, 2011 quarterback. Monte Ball, 2.91 war. So both of those guys, great seasons, just not great enough for all-time status, but still really good seasons. That one was for Jeremy P. Trent Richardson from Alabama, 2.25 war. Uh, solid pickup for JH. Bernard Pierce, 2.2 uh, war uh, for the commish. At a temple, and just and then we go to wide receiver Justin Blackman from Oklahoma State for Andrew R, Kendall Wright for JH out of Baylor, and Ryan Broyles for Alex A out of Oklahoma. All between a two point five and a two WAR. That was your first team wide receiver, Ladarius Green, tight end, point seven three, University of Louisiana Lafayette. So he made it a couple years in a row, and then for your defense. You have Alabama and LSU as your first teamers, a 1.67 and a 1.54 war. 
those are um, those are your all CFFL teams. So just to kind of like bring it back full circle here. A lot of offensive fireworks in the playoffs. A lot of great performances. Not historically, but still a really solid season. And again, I do think early 2010s was an easy time because players couldn't move as much yet. But we also had more information coming out about players, social media, things of that nature. It kind of made it possible for a short period of time to be able to keep players for a couple years and stash some of those players. Like Bob Griffin was taken in 2009 by J.H. and was contributing to this team. Bernard Pierce was a top five player uh, out of Temple for the commish who was contributing that year. Like a lot of the players – on these teams were draft picks from prior years, which made it kind of cool. Trent Richardson was a prior year draft pick. So we were seeing that lineage of draft and then develop type of player. Like you don't see that one all the time, but that did make it exciting. Um, That one's a little bit harder to replicate now. I will say this was the beginning of a more energetic period of the CFFL that I think has sustained over time. And to me, I think that's the takeaway from 2011 season. What could have been for JH three titles in four years, his best team that he had, even better than his championship teams, but also the fact the coming together, the really starting to forge the identity of what it is today that all laid the groundwork in 2011. So when anyone ever asked, like, when did you know you have it? To me, this was the year. And we just got really lucky that whenever we had to replace somebody, we always replaced them with probably a little bit more value added with whoever we brought in. And there were points in the time in this league where I didn't know if that would be able to happen. So great players, great owners, great time. And – I think 2011 really launched the season, or launched the league, I should say. And I think with that, I think that gives you kind of a rundown of what 2011 uh, and the beginnings of what we are today were all about. And hopefully there's another 40, 50 uh, years to come, right? I don't know, maybe a lot. We'll see. Thank you for listening to this. Thank you for listening to this series, the CFFL Memoria. We'll be coming back with more podcasts, uh, talking about different ideas as we get ready with the draft somewhere around, what, seven weeks away? So exciting times. College football is near again. Hope everyone has a great day. More of these will be coming up. Talking soon. All the best.